Welcome to the ACC Podcast. We're honored that you took some time out of your day to listen to our weekly message. As churches around the U.S. begin to open, ACC is opening as well. However, to stay in compliance with the CDC, we're having just one service at 10 a.m. on Sundays with 25% capacity. You can sign up on our website. You can also visit our website if you have any questions about ACC, like our core beliefs, where we are located, or other key information. It's an easy website to remember, anacortischristian.church. That's A-N-A-C-O-R-T-E-S Christian.church. You can contact us directly through there or by phone or email. We look forward to hearing from you. As for now, take some time to sit down, get comfortable, and enjoy the message. We're in a series going through the book of Daniel, and we have gone through Daniel 1 through 7. This is a book about God's people who are transplanted in the, into the kingdom of Babylon. And the question all along is, is what, it mean, what does it mean to be faithful to God in a foreign land? And, and are these people just exiles, or is God planting them like seeds in foreign soil? And that's all of our story. If you're a Christ follower, if you believe in Jesus, we have the same calling. We are ambassadors, 2 Corinthians says, for Jesus. We represent the true kingdom, the kingdom of God. Even now in our lives here, we're planted, we're We've been planted in foreign soil, so to speak. So last week, I want to give a little bit of follow-up. Last week was Daniel chapter 7, and last week I got lots of feedback. It was kind of a challenging message, and uh, the feedback was all good. We got more emails, text messages, um, Facebook messages, than probably any other message I've ever, 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 ever preached, and it was all, all, you know, good responses, and so if you missed that, that's one to go check out, because the message was very important for discerning what does it look like to really be human versus when we try to be more than human, we tend to become less than human. We become more like beasts, right? And that's the picture that's there in Daniel chapter 7. And of all the feedback I got, I did get a couple questions, and one of those questions, um, actually two people asked kind of the same question, and it was, um, so there's kind of a, a negative here. The negative is like, here's what not to be. What's the proactive positive? You know, give me, what are the three steps? What's the practical application here for, for how to truly be more human? And, and really, it was there if you listen, so go back and listen. But it's more subdued. It's not three easy steps to a better you, you know, because it's not that easy. Because what God asks us to do is is basically what I did during that message. I read our culture through the lens of God's word. And the action step is we need to grow in wisdom and discernment of how we learn to see the world. Remember Daniel saw all the things that we revere as statues of glory and power, he saw through God's eyes as as amalgamations of twisted, horrific beasts, right? We don't often, often see the world the way God sees it as human beings. We're called to learn how to discern those things in our own heart, our own impulses, learn what to subdue and what to realign in order to align ourselves with uh, God's 
plan for flourishing, for what it is to be human. So what that means, you look at Daniel, the man prayed continually. And we're going to hear the word continually a lot today. That's our calling. You need to grow in God's word. You need to read it. You need to learn it. You need to discern it. And that's, that's how we grow in this area, to grow in that relationship. This chapter, chapter 8, is very similar to chapter 7. And when we were going to set out to do, uh, preach through the book of Daniel, I remember being asked, um, are we going to preach through the whole book of Daniel? Because the second half is really strange, right? It's a bunch of crazy visions and dreams, and it's very apocalyptic. And most churches and pastors, they'll tend to not preach the second half because it's either too difficult to figure out or they don't feel like there's enough relevant information. I like those kinds of challenges, okay? I like to go, okay, let's, let's see if we can do it. Let's find what's here, because I believe every bit of God's Word is for us. You know, even if it wasn't written directly to us, there's something there that's for us. And so it's important to, to rise to that challenge and, and see what it has for us. So this is going to be a bizarre chapter. Uh, chapter 8 starts with verse 1. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. Now, if you recall, last week, uh, Daniel 7 happened during the first year of Belshazzar's reign. Okay, so this is still the empire of Babylon. This is the second vision, and, and like it, it take, like the first, it takes place before the events of Daniel chapter 6, which was, and actually the, chapter 5, really. Uh, so this takes b place before Daniel 5 and 6, with is like the lion's den, you know that story, and so on. And if you want more information about why they're out of order, you can go back and listen. I kind of explained it last week, maybe the week before. Um, but you're going to notice that there are similarities, once again, between the vision in this chapter and the previous one. Both are about animals that trample people. Both are about those animals having horns that represent a, a mighty ruler who causes incredible, ruthless devastation in the world, but will ultimately be removed. So if that's the case, the question is, why is it here? And why is it worth a message on Sunday morning? Well, once again... It's very much the same story, but again, it's from another perspective. And, which, and this was going to shed a lot more light on the events that are to come. I'll summarize the next couple verses. Daniel is by a canal in his vision, and he sees a ram, a ram with two horns. And those horns represent the kings of Media and Persia, which would begin to take over the, from Babylon almost immediately after this vision. Verse 4 says, I watched the ram as it charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased, and it became very great. <clears throat> now we enter the shaggy flying unigoat. Yes, this is Daniel. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it, 
The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. Oh, just like the ram. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Now, scholars almost universally agree up to this point. After the Persian Empire took over, Alexander the Great of Greece came from the west, the Mediterranean, with incredible speed. He subdued and conquered a whole bunch of nations that created a new empire that went all the way beyond Greece and then all the way down to India. Okay, it was massive and it happened in a very short period of time. But like the big horn being broken off, Alexander died suddenly, either of fever or of a fall. And uh, he he died at the age between 30 and 33. And his empire was broken up and split into four main segments. And there were actually more than four rulers overall. But the main focus of this chapter is really on what happens next. One of them, one of the horns, came uh, out of one of the horns, came another horn, which started small, but grew in power in the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. That would be the land of Israel, likely. It grew until it reached the host of heavens, the host of the heavens. And it threw some of the the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and its sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people? He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be re-consecrated. Now in the next few verses, the angel Gabriel is instructed to tell Daniel the meaning of the vision much of which I have already paraphrased, and so uh, we'll pick up in verse 23. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will rise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy ones. He will cause deceit, to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given to you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. And that concludes the the vision, Daniel becomes ill after this. Okay, this is devastating to him. Why don't we pause and pray again here? Father, this is your word, and it's easy to look at this vision and go, that's kind of interesting, kind of strange. How does this relate to us? And so I just pray that you give us ears to hear. And today, Lord, I, I feel like there's a lot of points that could be made 
And the question is, of course, whether those points will really come across. And so I just pray for your Holy Spirit to speak where I can't speak, Lord. Speak to our hearts. Fill in the gaps. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay. How are we all doing so far here? You know, it, this is strange stuff. This is like apocalyptic imagery. And it'd be easy to go like, okay, did I decide to actually step out and take the risk and go to church today or, or sit down and watch a screen today in church to hear about the shaggy flying unigoat? What does this have to do with my life? What does this have to do with our present situation? You know, I know people who are struggling, people who have lost jobs recently. Um, you know, hang with me because it has everything to do with our present time. But not necessarily directly. Um, who is this about? There's some debate about this. A lot of scholars most agree that it was probably a ruler named Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, who came and basically did everything that was described here, though not everything is worded the same, and he did a lot of different things too. And uh, he came and completely desecrated the Holy Land, the temple, um, sacrificed a pig on God's altar, made it illegal to practice Judaism. Basically, his goal was to Hellenize the entire empire, that is to create a one-world order where everyone spoke the same language, Greek, and everyone uh, worshipped the same pagan religion, and he wanted to create uniformity that way, and it was extremely violent. If you want to read about it, you can pick up a Bible with an apocrypha in it, and the books of Maccabees are about the revolution against this king. Okay? Now, others pe believe it was the Herodian dynasty uh, in the church during the time of Christ. Um, not church, but the Herodian dynasty in the Roman Empire during the time of Christ, and there's also evidence to support that idea, which basically did a lot of the same things. They can kind of line up similarly. I don't believe that this is a passage about the end times, even though the, the, the angel says this is about the time of the end, but he's talking about the end of a period of time because he defines the end of that period of time as being 2,300 evenings and mornings uh, although in the book of Revelation, the author John, he uses a lot of the imagery and the stories from Daniel to describe what is going to happen in the end. So you wouldn't write it off completely. There's a pattern that seems to recur throughout history. These things come and go, and it will culminate at some point probably in the end. Okay? Now, all that information is what seems to get everyone's attention. Like, I read several commentaries about this chapter, and almost all of them spent probably 80% of their space arguing about which king is which and how they match up with history and so on. But that has very little do to do with the, the meaning that I believe this passage has for us. And so that's what I want to get into. So how is this pictured? Let's look at this. Specifically, what does this person do? He conquers and becomes extremely powerful. He removes the institutions that constitute the worship life and identity of the people. So he says the daily sacrifices were taken away. The word sacrifice is actually not in the original language. It's just the daily or the continual or the perpetual. And that doesn't make a lot of sense in English, but it's a reference to all of the rituals that made up the culture of the people in Israel. So he does away with that and he 
and God's temple, his sanctuary is going to be thrown down, and God's people will be trampled. And this is pictured with intensity, okay? This is not just, hey, they outlawed religion. No, this is, this king ascended to the point where he attacked the starry hosts of heaven and threw some of them down. What's that all about? It makes me think of the Tower of Babel, right? Let's build a tower to the skies and we'll make a name for ourselves, right? He's challenging God's own rule and authority and truth, truth is thrown to the ground and this transgression results in desolation. Now that's some extreme terminology. Why? Let's put ourselves a little bit in, in this perspective here for a second. I want to ask you a question. What's your story? What's your story? Where did you come from? Where are you going? Where is your story taking you? That's the question. And if I were to ask that story to a group of you, a panel of people perhaps, I'd get a variety of answers. Some might be very individualistic. You'd say, you'd tell me a story about your upbringing, the school you went to, the degree you might have got, the career path you chose, how you changed careers, how you ended up where you are today and where you hope to be in the near future or distant future and so on. Others would be a little bit more relationship-oriented, especially if you're married, your husband or wife might figure heavily into that story, your family might be a part of that story. Even more community-oriented would be uh, maybe perhaps like your, your grandfather came to North America uh, you know, with five cents in his pocket and he found hope and opportunity and he prospered greatly and he built a life and a legacy for his family. And so, so our nation and how it's made up and what comprises it and, and, and the rights and everything that it offers is a big part of your story. And the, your family history is a major part of your story. Your story is connected with your people. Or perhaps your story includes a people who were enslaved or transplanted, or, or victims of injustice. And right now in this time in our culture, it's, it's really difficult as you're sleuthing through, what is my story? Because that story seems to be getting a lot of different interpretations and revisions. And, and so contemplating your story greatly involves contemplating who you are as part of a people. And, and the story, the history of that people and how it ties you together. Our stories are a major part of our identities. They're not everything that composes our identity. You, know, you can take a Myers-Briggs test or read about the Enneagram and that's part of your identity too. <clears throat> but our stories are a big part of our identities. And your identity is going to determine in large part how you act or react to situations in the future, like a pandemic. And with regards to all these issues, there seems to be one thing that everyone can disagree on. What is the true story? What is truth? Is there one true story? Or are there many truths? Can you rewrite the story? Can you revise the story and change an identity based on that revision? And when there are thousands of variations of truth and everyone is telling a different story, 
we start to see increasing chaos, don't we? Right? What's the solution? What's the way forward through the fog? Now think about this. The king in this story takes away not only the daily sacrifices, but the continual worship rituals of the people, and the result is that all hell breaks loose. Why? I mean, if someone came up to you and said, I'm taking away your Bible, some of you might feel pretty devastated by that. Some of you would not experience a lot of change. It's difficult to go to church right now. There's a lot of regulations on our continual worship practices. How much of an effect does that have on you? For these people, it was massive. Why? Part of the reason, you have to remember that they didn't have books that could circulate by which you would just individually go and learn your story, your history, or write a history, or rewrite it, right? It was all wrapped up in their routines. What is worship? What is worship? Well, Mike, we just did worship. No, that's not worship. Worship isn't just singing songs. But why do we sing songs? We sing songs because songs stick in your head and because it provides us a, a means of connecting with God. I believe music is very powerful that way. But it's not just a musical experience. And worship isn't just an experience for the individual. We worship because worship tells the story. Worship tells the true story over and over again. Through song, through preaching, through the ritual of, of prayer or reading your word or coming to church. Worship tells the story. This king comes and he takes away the daily, the continual, the perpetual. And it's a word that is first used right back in Exodus when all the instructions are given for the worship life surrounding the tabernacle and later the temple. So Exodus 25, you will put on the table of the bread of the presence. The bread will always be there before me continually. Okay? You'll command the Israelites and they'll bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the lights in the temple and cause them to burn, cause the light to burn continually. What does that mean? It means that the bread of the presence is to always have fresh bread on it to be replaced continually, always, throughout all time for that period of time anyway. Okay, because it represents God's people in his presence. Right across from that table is a lamp and the lamp is supposed to have these lights it's the menorah representing the tree of life shining upon the presence of God's people. May his face shine upon you, okay, continually. And so the priestly duty was to always have oil in those lamps so it was always continually burning. They're supposed to continually light the incense so that there was always, so the cloud would, representing God's covering presence as people come into his holy presence, would continually be there. The fire for the burnt offering was to continually burn. And these are all continuals. And so this king comes away and he does away with the continual. What's the big deal? Because all of those things that are continually in place tell the story. 
They tell a story of a God who called his people out from the nations to be his special people. It tells a story of how God rescued those people out of slavery by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and claimed them and redeemed them as his own people. It tells a story of his covenant marriage relationship with his people and their calling to go into the nations and to bring healing to the world. It tells the story of their rebellion against God. And it tells a story of a hope of a future that one day, just like going into the holy place of that temple, all people would be restored to Eden at last, would be restored to the garden, of God, to God's presence at last. And you want to keep that story in front of you because that's the true story. Now think about this for a second. If these things are being acted out constantly, what would that do to a community? It would galvanize that community together, right? It would bond them in unity together, wouldn't it? If you remove the continual worship of a community, you remove the story of the community. If you remove the story from that community, you remove the truth from that community. If you remove the truth from that community, you remove the identity of the community. And if you remove the identity of the community, you have desolation in the community. This is why the king's actions are spoken of in such cosmic terms. When you mess with the worship life of the people, you are contending with the dominion of the hosts of heaven. I want to just give a little bit of background in this just because it's so interesting. If you were here when we did our God Outside the Box series, you'll remember some of this. But the terminology here is that this king ascends to the heavens and threw down some of the starry host and contended with the captain of the Lord's army. If you remember... In the Bible, in the Old Testament, the stars and the heavenly lights are associated with the lower G gods. Okay, they're symbols of the divine council, rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. In Genesis 1, on the fourth day, God creates these heavenly lights, and he gives them authority to rule, just like he gives the humans authority to rule over what's down here below. He gives them to, authority to rule over the day and the night, but specifically it says over signs, there to be for signs, seasons, days, and years. And this is a language that is associated with the Jewish festivals, in particular the calendar of their worship life. Okay? It's God's story, and the dominion of the heavenly host is a cycle that determines the telling of that story and the rituals that help the people interact with it, shaping their identity. Is this all making sense? Are you tracking with me? Okay, so, so every 
day, morning and evening, there were sacrifices. Every seventh day, there's a Sabbath. Every seventh year, there's a Sabbath of Sabbaths. Every 49 years, there's a Jubilee. Every month, there's a festival. And all of it is telling the story. And, and this is all dictated by the authority of God's servants, his angelic beings in heavens, who move the heavens to tell you when it's time to tell the story. And there's probably more to it than what I'm even getting at. But when you change the story... You're claiming to kick the angels out of heaven. Deuteronomy 4.19 says, Beware not to lift your eyes to heaven and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them or serve them instead of God. Those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. So this is an authority that God has given not only to those people who choose his truth or who worship him, specific people. No, this is an authority that is in put over all nations under heaven. When you mess with worship, you're messing with the dominion of the heavenly host, trampling truth, dissolving identity, and inviting desolation. This is the transgression that leads to desolation. And it impacts all nations. So remember Daniel 6, which is going to happen right after that. It's almost like this vision is preparing Daniel for what's going to happen in chapter 6. If you recall, the king Darius is tricked into issuing a decree that all continual worship of any god should stop except to the king of Babylon, Darius. For 30 days. Verse 10 of chapter 6 says, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem three times a day, regularly, continually, right? He got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. And when the king realizes that Daniel's going to have to be thrown into the lion's den, what does he say? He says, may your God, whom you serve, what? Continually rescue you. After the event, he comes near the den. He calls to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to rescue you from the lion's? And when Daniel prays, when he refuses to, continue, to, to stop continually worshiping, is he just making a statement? Like, what's he doing? Is it so he can feel good about himself? Look, I ain't doing what anybody says. I'm just going to worship my God, and you can just, you know, whatever. Is that his attitude here? Is it all about Daniel? Sometimes I think our worship is so individualistic. It's all about me having an experience with my warm, fuzzy God, you know? Is it all about me? Why is Daniel doing this? No. Daniel's faithful worship is intercessory. What does that mean? He means it's on behalf of the nations. In the sense that Daniel is refusing to allow the connection between humanity and the author of their story disappear for the sake of the nation that is about to execute him, Daniel is refusing to allow truth 
to be thrown to the ground. Why? Because when truth is thrown to the ground, it means desolation, chaos for all. When Daniel disobeys the king's order to cease his continual worship, he's acting not just for himself, but on behalf of the very people who are about to try to put him to death. Now that's all well and good. To claim that truth is thrown to the ground when we stop telling this story. But there's a question. This is extremely unpopular today because there's a lot of different stories. So who are you to say your story is the true story? Who are you to say that your story is right? And this invites a whole nother sermon topic in. But the objection is, isn't it arrogant and wrong to claim that truth is exclusive, that there is one true story? I'm reminded of the analogy that is often used of the three blind men and the elephant, right? Three blind men approach an elephant and they're told to describe it. And one person says, uh, you know, the elephant, he feels the trunk and he's like, the elephant is soft and snake-like and it moves around. And another person is, is grabbing like the foot and he is like, no, 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 an elephant is, is firm and sturdy like a tree. You know, and the other is going, no, no, no. He's kind of in the middle. He's like, no, no, the elephant is big and round like a boulder, you know. And, and the moral of the story is they all have truth. They all don't have all the truth. Um, they're all right, and they're all a little bit wrong. And so isn't that our approach to God? Well, the problem with this is that various truth claims all contradict each other, and so they can't all be right. There is truth in every one of them, no doubt. But the other revelation comes, um, in the words of Leslie Newbegin in his book, The Gospel in a Pluralistic Society, it dawned on him that if you say that, if you say this is what it's really like, three blind men and an elephant, what you're saying is that your version of truth is so enlightened and so on high in your perspective that you can rightfully claim to see that everyone else is blind. You alone have the right perspective on truth and every other person in the story is wrong. So in order to say that, you alone have to make an exclusive claim about truth that you're trying to convert everyone else to believe. See, the reality is there is no such thing as a single person who does not have an exclusive truth claim and is trying to get other people to believe what they believe. No one. Everyone has an exclusive belief about truth. Everyone is trying to get everyone else to believe it. So the question is, which is right, which is true, which leads to human flourishing and less chaos and desolation. I want you to notice the difference between the two chapters. The nations conquer, they, they say they accept this, oh yeah, never mind. The nations, they conquer and they say, accept our truth or be trampled. You obey the truth to be accepted, but if you reject it, you'll be rejected. 
Well, here's a truth that exists to serve, not to conquer the nations. And Daniel is so sold out for this truth that he will continually practice it for the sake of, of the very nations who are going to trample him for it. Here's an interesting difference between Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. In Daniel 7, all the empires are regarded as these beastly, twisted, animalistic amalgamations, and they're all unclean animals. In chapter 8, the same empires are depicted from a Jewish perspective as ritually clean animals, a ram and a goat, that are often used for sacrifices, the daily morning and evening offerings. And in Ezekiel, you hear the nations referred to by these kinds of animals, a ram and a goat. So what's it all mean? When Jesus goes into the temple, what does he say? He says, my house shall be a house of prayer for the nations, yet you have made it a den of robbers. What it means is that these animals are meant, these earthly rulers, what are they supposed to be? They're intended to function as a pleasing offering to God laying their own agendas and lives down on behalf of the people they serve. And now they're exalting themselves, demolishing the offerings and worship, the story of God's people and God, setting themselves above the hosts of heaven and throwing the truth, the story, to the ground. And this results in desolation. When you take away worship, you take away the story. Take away the story, you take away the identity. You take away the identity, truth gets thrown down, desolation ensues, and people get trampled. True worship isn't just about you. It wasn't just about Daniel. It's the act of interceding for the nations. The claim of Christianity is unique. It's the claim that truth, true worship, the true story, the true relationship, wasn't just a set of doctrines that you should believe or be rejected. No. This truth became a person that you can know. And so the question is, how can you trust a truth claim? The answer is, what is it going to ask of you? What is it going to ask of you? you? If you want a relationship and you give yourself ultimately to that relationship, and the other person doesn't do the same for you, you're going to be exploited, right? You're going to be used and trampled upon. But in Jesus, truth came as a person who fully took all of our exploitation upon himself, was fully trampled on our behalf. So you can already know entering into this relationship that Jesus doesn't hold out on you. He doesn't expect something from you and then not give anything in return. No, he already took every um, offense, every, in every way this relationship could have gone bad for God, Jesus did that in himself. He took it already and he still wants you. Okay, he still wants us. He still pursues us. In Jesus, truth becomes a person. 
We see that when someone messes with the continual worship institutions of God's sanctuary, it's like they're challenging the fabric of the rule and dominion of heaven itself. John says Jesus was the Word become flesh. In Jesus, heaven came down. The leader of the starry host and the ultimate representative of the authority of heaven became a man and was willingly trampled. John 1, 9-14 says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, though he wrote the story, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who, became, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John 3.19 says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but the people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Jesus identified the, temp the temple, the sanctuary that is abolished in Daniel 8, right? He identifies that temple as himself in John chapter 3, and then he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. And everyone laughed at him because they didn't realize that he wasn't talking about that temple. He was saying, I am the temple. I am the place where the continual story of God and his people is told. I'm the place where God's presence dwells, and you can connect with him personally. That's me. And later they realized after the resurrection that that's what he was talking about. After three days, Jesus was resurrected. Jesus is our greater Daniel. <clears throat> we read, no animal could stand against the ram and none could rescue from its power. And Hebrews 7.25 says, therefore Jesus is able to save, rescue completely. He can rescue completely those who come to him, to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Stand in the gap for you and me. He's our temple. He's the, he's the cloud. He's the presence. He's the light. He's everything that was thrown down. And you can be saved completely you can come to God through him. He laid aside his greatness. He became flesh and blood. He did not count equality with God something to be exploited. He didn't just do as he pleased. He did the will of his Father. And he was trampled to the point of death on a cross. And now has received dominion and authority to rule as the true king of this earth. And he uses that power to save and to rescue I want to ask you this. What's your continual? What's your story? What's the true story? We all have different stories. 
But is there one real story underneath it all that gives meaning and purpose and a history and a future? How important is it to continually worship God? How is important is it to completely come back to the story and retell it again and again? How, what's at stake? What happens if we let that go? We start to believe other stories. Our story gets trampled. We start to lose our identity because our identity is rooted in a wash of stories. And suddenly, our lives look pretty desolate and chaotic. This is an interesting time we live in because for many Christians, a big part of their continual, their daily, their ritual is church. Going to church regularly. And now, that daily thing, that ritual thing, is being taken away somewhat, right? And, and I'm not here to point fingers and say, oh, it's the government, or oh, it's the, the virus, or you know, whatever that is. The question is, how important is it? How important is it to be with people? How important is it to worship and tell the story together? Do you have a continual something in your life? Are you reading God's Word continually? Are you worshiping Him continually? Are you standing in the gap, realizing that when you maintain that connection with your story, the connection of truth to humanity is upheld, and insofar as that is maintained, we prevent desolation in the nations. Our worship is an intercessory act for the nations. We need a prayer life. We need to grow in that area. We need to study God's word. And I would just suggest, as much as your health or, you know, you think about this, weigh the risks and everything, but find a family if you haven't. Find families that you can be with. You've got to be with the body in some form perpetually. I've just talked to someone recently who said, I'm fighting battles. I'm struggling because this person is all alone. Okay? It's important to be with people in some way or another. And so I'm not here to say go break all the rules and rebel. There's other things to consider. You don't want to be with someone and then have them get sick and possibly, you know, we can go down that trail too. Daniel 6, 10, Daniel's in there and he prays three times daily. Ephesians 6, 18, pray in the Spirit perpetually. Stay alert. Luke 18, 1, that men ought to always pray and not faint. Luke 21, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Romans 12, 12, continuing in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. The whole point is that when something radically interrupts your regular worship life, it's contending with something very serious in the heavenly realms and it has massive consequences. John said, our world is hostile to God. It prefers the darkness. It doesn't care about your story. 
I want to close as we go into communion just by reading 1 John 4, 1 through 10. And so if you've got your emblems, you can get those ready at this time. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit. The word for spirit is the same as wind. Okay, so every, every spirit, every doctrine, every truth claim. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. <clears throat> you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. That's your story. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Thanks again for joining us today. We want to remind you that we love you and God loves you, and you always have a place here at ACC. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us if you need prayer or just need someone to talk to. Go in peace and have a wonderful week. We'll talk to you soon.